Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Romans chapter 1, notice if you will in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became what? Vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. You know, as we think about our society, that when we look at the society around us, your first blank's coming up here, I think that you would note a changed America. I would ask you a question, just a show of hands. Now, I'm not talking about a change. I, went, I was traveling down south this last month to visit some family, and I came into various towns that I have not been in a number of years, and it's changed. The roads are wider. There are roads that weren't there. There are communities. I was with my brother-in-law. We're driving down there, and he's, we're going back to his mother's house for him to pick up an item. And um, I said, yeah, I thought you lived out in the country. He said, you know, all my life growing up, he said, we motorbiked in these fields. Went fishing in that pond over there. He said, but in the last five or six years, they've just brought all manner of housing in here. It's completely changed. That is not the change I'm talking about. I like to take an opportunity to read these U.S. US Today and World Report. This would be interesting to you. Put out an uh, uh, article uh, this past year. They surveyed and they listed, you're not going to believe this, they listed the top 10 best places to retire. Anybody read this article? Five of them were in Pennsylvania. Number one was Lancaster. Who's, who's talking with me? Yeah, number one was Lancaster. I don't remember number two. Number three was Harrisburg. Number two was York. One of them was the Lehigh Valley. I think they rounded out to top 10, something like that. And there's another one in there too. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. But based on their factors of housing opportunities, stability of markets, access to health care, because if you're retiring, you're going to wind up in the ICU from a bicycle accident, you know. <laughs> so all of that being an important thing, and they looked at it and said, yeah, five of them, four of the top ten were basically in the central, central Susquehanna Valley. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. So I'm not talking about demographic changes. I'm not talking about uh, financial changes where, you know, there's buildings and that kind of stuff. But when you look at how society itself has changed, how many of you can say, I notice a dramatic difference between the America that is today and the America that was of my early years? Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty telling. Now, I'm, you know, just in my 20s and, uh, you know, when I look back, I see changes. But usually mine are less noticeable and I think this is, I think you'd agree with this with time, because when you look back, especially those that spent a lot of their growing up years, 60s and 70s, there is a demonstrative shift in our society. This is the change I'm talking about. For many, they see a different America than the one they remember from their youth. Sometimes we blame these distinctions on generational changes. I might have taken note there where you're writing that word. Generational changes always occur. They're never ceasing to, to occur. Um, your children will have likes and dislikes and preferences and things that um, attract them, that intrigue them, that the parents did not. And that's not necessarily a morality thing. Uh, for instance, I think of my grandfather. 
My grandfather was a lover of mechanics. He owned, at one time, three different gas stations, different times of life. He loved to work on cars, and I failed him because that was never my thing. And uh, he and my dad would bond over vehicles. But my granddad's dad spent the plurality of his life not driving in a car. After the war, my granddad got a vehicle, and he took it back up to pick up mom. And she was timid about it, his mother, I mean. And he said, come on, I want to show you something, Mom. And she got in the car, and he said, we're going to do a mile a minute, 60 miles an hour. And he got on the one road, and he hammered that thing, and she was terrible. 60 mile an hour. How many of you have driven 60 mile an hour last week? <laughs> Not higher than the speed limit, but she got back. She was so excited. She went around telling all the neighborhoods uh, that they drove 60 miles in a minute. Uh, something like that. You know, she had it all. Oh, she was, it was just a whole nother thing. That is not the shift we're talking about. It's not a generational shift. There's been generational shift. I, I mean, hearing, show of hands now, hearing of somebody coming to space and returning. For you folks born since 1980, is that an impressive thing? It happens regularly. We've got private people in this country that own rocket ships that go up into outer space I mean, right now, if you've got the money, you can pay, charter a seat on Blue Horizon, fly up, orbit the space, and come down. 1950s, there's only one or two men that had actually done that. And now it's open to a mass market if you've got the money for it. Now, how many of you remember the 1950s and 60s when that was an original thing? And how that captured everyone's attention if you believe they actually landed on the moon? It's a joke. So we're not talking about a generational change. While these differences exist, the shift in our society is much further reaching. <laughs> in the last two centuries, here's your next blanks, secular humanism, secular humanism has dominated politics and the educational system. So if you were born in the 50s and 60s, you were born under the prevailing worldview of secular humanism. If you were born in the 70s, that's likely the case as well. Secular, and I, I want to define that for you in just a moment. But it dominated politics and the educational system. But in this new millennium, there has been a cultural change of biblical proportions that has occurred. Secular humanism although rooted in deism, and I'll pause there and explain what I mean there. When you see the word secular, it means atheistic. Preceding the worldview of the West before secular humanism was humanism. And really, when you look at some of the 16s and 1700s, those societies were dominated, at least in the West, by a form of humanism. And it was rooted... It was the father, if you will, of secular humanism, but it was rooted in a form of deism. Most of your founding fathers of this country weren't Bible-believing Christians. And Thomas Jefferson, you go out and get the Jeffersonian Bible, and he writes through it, and he's like, he, he, the big difference about the Jeffersonian Bible is he's taken out references to God, Jesus Christ as deity. Ben Franklin was a profligate, you know, he was a very immoral man, but he was something of a deist and certainly of a humanist probably on the early portion of being a secular humanist. 
they're very similar. That's why I say it's rooted in deism. You're following blank there. It is atheistic. Secular means they look to man for all the answers. And they may have an aperture of there being a God, not necessarily the God of the Bible. Ben Franklin was a grand friend of George Whitfield. And when the Quaker elders of Philadelphia had banned George Whitfield from preaching in the center from the convention halls, Ben Franklin took his influence of his newspaper magazine, his friends, and they cobbled together money and they built an open-air tabernacle, but stipulated in its deeding it had to be used to any religion at all. Even going as far to say, Ben Franklin did in his article in his newsletter, he said that if an imam from the Muslim world wants to come, he is free to preach. That's someone that doesn't believe in a true singular God, but he does have a moral respect for religions. But his grand hope for mankind in his eyes will be man aspiring to greatness, hence the humanism. It, secular humanism, is a worldview that really has at its basis, and I'm being very broad here, but three major tenets. Three major tenets. Number one, they hold to a naturalistic philosophy. A naturalistic philosophy. Now, if you're speaking in terms of natural, you can almost hear it. Nature. So by saying that someone has a naturalistic philosophy, you're saying this, science is chief. Now, I know we hear a lot of that today. It is different. It is different. They're talking about what can be observed and seen. They're talking about having the opportunity to expand the scope of their horizon, looking out at what others have done and doing and building upon it. Secular humanism, or let me back that up, humanism was a prevailing uh, mainstream Western worldview at the founding of our country. Do you know where your founding fathers of this country looked as a form of government? They didn't just sit down one day and say, well, I think we should do this. And the other guy said, no, this is what I should do. They were all learned men. They had classical educations. They all looked in the past history. And they attempted to extract from the past things that worked and didn't work. And out of that which worked, cobbled together and say, how can we maximize the freedom of these people? They're looking abroad. They're observers. That's what it means by science is chief. You'll remember, I don't have these written down, so I couldn't remember it. But you remember the theories behind science? The first is observation. Do you remember this? Well, that's what they did. And so they looked at the city-states of Greece. And that's where they decided that a democracy was not the best way to go. Why? The city-states of Greece died. They were all conquered. And so we can't really have that democracy in a whole. It, it, it means the idea that all the people get to vote on every decision. It's impractical for a nation, though it might have some efficacy for a city. <coughs> they looked at France for 20 minutes and then said, that's, we'll just let all that go. No, I'm joking a little bit. <laughs> we'll let all that go. They held their eyes to the land from which many of them came, Britain. They adhered and looked back to the Magna Carta. And they said, wow, there were some wonderful liberties that England had. How do we preserve those? And from that came a true constitutional republic. And out of that republic, a representative form of government in which, and this was a major contention, you know, you've got two houses, an upper and a lower, <coughs> and a senatorial 
uh, side, the upper chamber, that is elected as a whole or re-elected as a whole over a phase of three years or six years, three different terms, you know, and a representative body that every two years is completely re-elected. And a president's in back, and that's how they did it. It was not just something they contrived out of their own imagination. It was something that they pulled observationally from all that they had seen and began to mail that in and build it, and no doubt, as they would give credit, providence dictated. They were influenced greatly by a naturalistic philosophy that looked abroad as observers of things. The second tenet about secular humanism, they have a dedication to reason and to natural truth. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, if you have reason, you know what you have to, you know what you have, to have to have reason? A secular humanist would not necessarily accept the Bible as divine truth. In fact, I would say they would not. But when you have a dedication to reason, you have free speech. So what do you do? You have a conversation. In the days of really the last 200 years, every great political movement had one thing in common. Or someone or somebody's had the ability to orate with high reason. It was about convincing people to a position that you had observed in natural existence of history and science, extracting from that a truth, and then being able to reason. So that means you've got to have an answer from, for every contrary truth that is positioned. Because you know what you observe in science? In science, you don't have five truths about one object. You have one. That's what you have. And so they have a dedication to reason and natural truth. And number three, and this is an important one, they have a pursuit of consequential or consequentialistic ethical or ethics system. What do you mean? Observing from, from nature, reasoning from truth, establishing a working relationship, if you will, treating others right is positively good for a society. Therefore, for there to be a breach of trust, there has to be a consequence. Believe it or not, that's what you've saw, seen over America the last, the better part of the last 200 years. That's why in America, if a president was caught lying to people, as in the, was it Watergate time frame? That's why he resigned. Because his own party said, I, to continue my re-election, I'm going to have to go with him. Why? Because it meant something. That's why when scandals were discovered, they were ruination to candidates. I don't mean something just morally depraved. I mean, if there was a scandal, it would rock apart the foundation of a candidate's organization and hence his ability to be elected. Much of this is based on the philosophy of humanism, particularly secular humanism. Secular humanists value many things that make a society function well. Let me give you a few of them. There's some of them I, I just decide not to wear your hand out. For instance, reason. I've already mentioned this. Open discussion. A humanist, secular or otherwise, enjoys dialogue. Because it's reason. 
They have to have compassion. Why? It's an observer of nature. It's what will better my country. Inquiry. There's an inquisitiveness about them. I dare say that's long gone. You just Google everything now. <coughs> Free speech. Ethical behavior. See, some of these are in keeping with principles that you and I should have as a biblical worldview. That's exactly what the word preach means when Paul uses it a few times. It means to contend with. Now, he's not talking about beating people over the head, but the ability that Paul gave when he dealt with the Jews, part of the idea of preaching was not only the proclamation of the Word of God, or the teaching, but sometimes it was the ability to sit down and reason with them, which, by the way, is exactly what he did on various occasions in the book of Acts. He reasoned with them. Those are the same words of our dear Lord. Isaiah the prophet spoke in the first chapter, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. It is not that a secular humanist believes a biblical worldview, but some of a humanist point of view adopts from nature truths and benefits that come from nature's God that they may not even know exist. By the way, that phrase is in the foundation documents of our country. Nature and nature's God. That's where it comes from. That's why to be... To be on one side, that's why 50 years ago, 20 years ago, you could go about in a society, you'd have people that had really no, and I'm speaking in very broad, general terms, that, you, that had no really strict religious upbringing. But they had a level of morality in their life, or shall I call it also common decency. It was the worldview. Someone has said that secular humanism really commenced at the fall of the Bastille in 1789. That was in France, the overthrow that pre-led all of the uh, French Revolution where they sought to purge God. And really to a great end concluded in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Using that mark as 1989, the idea would be that this millennial generation is the first generation that has grown up in a prevailing worldview that is not secular humanism. Meaning reason, compassion, inquiry, free speech, and, and some type of ethical, moral behavior is no longer pursued. Back to our notes. <coughs> While to be a secular humanist is to reject, ultimately reject, the truths of Scripture. Because they have not went to the Word of God to find this. Where did they go? Well, they went to science. But keep in mind Romans chapter 1. You're there in your Scriptures. Listen to them. Listen to this. For the invisible things of Him from the... Do you remember? Creation of the world are clearly seen. Some of what they picked up from science is a direct truth of the Word of God. That's why it could make society function. Though they may deny the existence of the Supreme God, they accepted nature's morality, failing to realize the God that instilled that morality and that truth and that distinction in world. They reject, ultimately reject this truth of Scriptures. However, society can have, parentheses, human success 
under this worldview. And if you need evidence, you only need to look at the last 200 years of our collective history as the United States of America. However, secular his humanism is no longer the dominant worldview in our society. Our society has exchanged Father Science for Mother Earth. The shift is readily apparent. And as I've already given you this, but I'll read it again, we are about one generation, one generation into the apparent worldview of paganism, which is the mother of all false religions. And while you're filling that out, I'll go back to exchanging Father Science. I'm not attributing that to the fact that Father Science is God. I'm trying to show a distinction that a secular humanist would not recognize the God of all creation, but he would recognize any truths that he could observe from science. He failed to make that distinction in those. And now we've gone to a mother of all religions. Let's speak of this for a moment. When I'm speaking of paganism, I'm not talking of erratic misbehavior. You know, as a little kid, some of the children, we'd get carried on and excited about somebody, and one of the adults would say, stop acting like a pagan. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about chaos, order and disorder. And for you that are old enough, I'm not also talking about a motorcycle gang. That was a thing, right? Yeah. By paganism, I'm not talking about the L.A. pagans, you know. When we speak of paganism, we're speaking of the oldest religion on the face of the earth. This ancient religion can be found in its foundation and the interaction that it had in the Garden of Eden. It is a worldview that is pagan. And if we'll take time, as we will this morning, to go into Genesis, we'll find some of its foundational beliefs. So with that in mind, I mentioned earlier, turn over to Genesis. <coughs> and what I want to do this morning is give you four tenets, four foundational beliefs of paganism. Next week... I want to take some time and look on how you and I as believers um, should be able, through the whole, with the Holy Spirit of God, with the truths of the Word of God, how we combat, behave with a pagan society. Now, I would note a number of things about this, paganism, but historically, just, just one of them I'll give you before I get into these tenets. Having a pagan society does not mean that it's over with and that there is no hope of God's work. I'll say that again. If a society is a paganistic society, it does not mean that that is the end of that society. Now, I would not say something like that unless I felt, no, unless I knew there was biblical truth behind it. We'll look at that next week. 
Because the reason we're able to have a Sunday school lesson next week on how to minister, live, preach, exist in that form with a pagan society is Paul dealt with pagan societies. They're in Genesis. They're throughout scriptures. And if we're able to get to where we are here this morning, or where we were years ago, if we're able to exist as societies today when paganism were rampant, then surely there's hope for America today. I'll give you one other physical examination. I was listening to some documentaries recently on the land of Scotland. And if you really want, I mean, I should, let me just get to the point. They were originally the Picts. That's what they were called. They called it that because that is a Latin deriv- derivation of the word that we use called the painted ones. They were in a moral lot. They ran around influenced by a Celtic worship, worship of pagan gods, polytheistic, no distinction of morality, living nomadically, no foundation of towns and cities and structures and laws. They were often known in the worship of their God to paint themselves blue as they were stripped fully naked. Hence the word, the pigs. As time would happen and the gospel would come into the land of Britain, these pigs would be known for the region of Scotland, both the highlands and the lowlands. Here's an amazing thing. When you get to the 1600s, Scottish people were considered some of the most ignorant and unlearned people in all the land of England. So if you have a lot of Scottish heritage, no one really thought highly of you. In fact, even into the 1700s, they still had temporary huts that they lived in. By the time you come to the Industrial Revolution of the 1700s, you see something marvelous that occurs. At the forefront of it were Scottish individuals. James Watts, the founder of the steam engine, Scottish. By the time you get to the Victorian England, something initially happens that all of the great medical doctors that dealt with heads of state, almost every one of them were Scottish. The first two medical schools here in these United States founded and funded by Scotsmen. Some of the great missionaries were Scottish. How, historically, do you go from a bunch of painted morons to cutting edge in 150 years? There's one little thing that's missing. And history glosses right over it. You know what happened? Somebody confronted that somebody's confronted that pagan society with the illuminating truths of the Word of God. Scottish people, there's only about 8 million of them worldwide. It's not a massive, numerous horde. There's not a billion of them. The sad truth is, by the time you get to the late 1800s and 1900s, Scotland's nothing as it would seem on the world's gauge. Why? Why? They had moved from a biblical worldview as a whole to secular humanism and melded in their distinction. The same is true of our country. Truly, the proverb says that sin is a reproach to any people. You're there in Genesis. 
we got just a few minutes. Let, let me get through this. You know, folks asking so many questions and we can't get through the notes. <laughs> Here's the first one. A pursuit, and I probably should have given you this next word, of egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. E-G-A-L-I-T-A-R-I-A-N-ism. E-G-A-L-I-T-A-R-I-A-N-ism. You probably remember these from civics class, oligarchy, monarchy, things of that nature. That's where this term comes. But to, to give you a definition, ready? Oneness. Paganism finds its distinction and it postulates it being equal. But it's really oneness. Notice, if you will, in Genesis, in the garden here. Genesis chapter, you're no doubt familiar with these passages. There's the temptation. Half God said, ye shall not, the serpent says in verse 4, ye shall die. But listen to what he promises in verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes, then, then your eyes shall be opened. And anybody remember the next phrase? Who's going to be as God's? Everybody. The first tenet in paganism is everybody's equal with God. Biblical truth is predicated really in twos. There's humanity in the creation and God. Paganism says, well, there's no God. Secular humanism said there's no God, but there is something. And we can have an open and reasoned discussion about what that something is. But we're going to focus on this. Deistic humanism says there is a God, I don't know much about him, he doesn't deal with the affairs of man. Paganism moves the step beyond and says, hey, really, we're God. Who's God? You're God, I'm God, he's God. Because everybody is a God, because oneness must be pursued, everything must be deconstructed. Now, how many are familiar with that term? We're in the age of deconstruction. We might be building better houses. We can have a discussion about that. We might be building better cars. We might be able to put a man on the moon. But all the structure that allowed that to come to pass must be taken out. I saw a political ad this week several times. And it was put by one candidate against the other. And he said of this other candidate, a Republican candidate, he said he wants to burn everything down. And the image has it burning down. I was like, well, that's interesting there. Let me see how this Republican candidate wants to burn everything down. He wants to burn everything down by allowing you not to have access to abortion. That's burning everything down? He wants to burn everything down by not having votes that nobody knows where they came from. He wants to burn everything down by letting you say whatever you want to say when you want to say it. And I found that humorous. Because no matter how you look at that, one stands for the things that made a society function well, was opened and reasoned, and really it's the other side that wants to limit all of that. Wants to destroy, wants to do away. We're going to say everything's got to be deconstructed. 
It's why it's a terrible travesty when you hear someone that is a pseudo-Christian saying, I need to deconstruct my faith. You know what that means? I need to take it apart. Friend, if you can deconstruct your faith, you never had saving faith to begin with. Deconstruct everything. Governments need to be deconstructed. Political systems need to be deconstructed. Where we stand on naturally observed genders. It's always amazing to me when they talk about these polygenders that exist. They always want to go to nature and say, well, there are some worms that have 14 species. A worm? That's what you want to compare human life to? Oh, when you look at nature, you see there are two genders. Go put two male rabbits in the same pen. What's going to happen, Brother Kresge? They're going to half kill each other. Go put a male and a female rabbit in the same cage, and what are you going to do? You're going to have meat all year long. That's what observing nature does. Why is it that way? In the beginning, God. That's why we are not champions of secular humanism. We are embracing a biblical worldview. Deconstruct, deconstruct gender. Notice the second one. There is in this pagan lifestyle a position of spirituality, not of divine truth. He says there in Genesis, not only will you be gods, but you'll know good and evil. That's an interesting thing to me. He's telling Eve, take of this fruit, right? Did Eve not know that God didn't want her to do that? What existed first, the temptation or God's decree? God's decree. God said, I've put this, don't do this. What determines good and evil? What you think or what God decreed? That's what God said. So we live in a society today that much like in the garden, you shall be as gods and know good and evil. What's that mean? Well, we're all one, so your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and there is no good and evil except for what you call bad, it's bad for you. So if you think in your life that the bad thing is this, that can be bad for you because you're your own God. That's our society today, isn't it? If you feel like your personally ascribed gender is Martian, that's your preferred pronoun, Martian, call me Martian. Because that makes me feel good and that's my truth. Friend, that is right out of the garden of wickedness. That is right out of paganism. And you hear so often today, a favorite word is, I'm spiritual but not religious. What's that mean? Oh, I have some idea of the next realm. By the way, the devil's spiritual too. But, I'm not religious. I don't adhere to any constructs. Now listen, there are some social constructs that are only as good as that society. For instance, if the Mormons were in charge of everything, their social construct would be a man and a woman and a woman and a woman and a woman. Right? That's their social construct. We, with a biblical worldview, we hold to a biblical construct... Man and wife. 
So society truly is not the final construct. The Word of God is. Here in this society, I'm spiritual. And speaking of the Western world, any religion and many of the classic traditional Western religions, it's mainly Christianity, they have constructs that at one time or another were based on the Word of God and spiritual. I have a desire for spiritual things. That's why in our society you can have churches that are confused. I, I read this uh, United Methodist Church, I think, is going through a big split now on gender. Presbyterian Church USA. Southern Baptists go through this every other year, it's like. It's too difficult for them to figure out what they should do because they have got their eyes on society or society is within and they've got to figure the constructs out rather than simply going to the... which lays them out so clearly. Number three, a progressive view of action. I'm going to flip over to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is those days just preceding the flood. I'll read a passage to you. It says in verse number 5, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Why? Why was their wickedness great? He goes on and listen, insomuch every imagination of his thought was only continual evil. How does a society exist like that? Well, if you're in paganism, we're all gods. All truth and evil is relative to you. And now the third point. Whatever you do, you ought to be allowed to do. Listen, every great while you hear someone talk about sexual deviance with kids and relate that, or uh, even, even back that up, they'll talk anything from incest to to homosexuality and things like that, and they'll try to link um, the sexual abuse of children together. And the news media cry out loud and say, oh, no, it's not that way. But it is that way. When a society allows open undefined interaction outside of the way that God lawfully decreed, There's no stop to hold it back. It follows and spires over the generations to the greatest filth and depravity the human mind can possibly contrive. You know why their wickedness was very great? Because they had the godless Midas touch. Everything they did was a direct affront to God's holiness. They had rejected morality, that which can be observed just from natural events, that which they knew about God. They had rejected the testimony of God. They had rejected His provision, His goodness. And if you want to find a little bit more about this society, go read down through Romans 1. And it's just a methodical spiral downward. And that's where you'll find it in a paganist society. Because you have to eradicate any moral standard truth. And when that's gone, anything you want to do. So if you're a cat... You want to use a litter box? I've got to get that litter box for you. I cannot make you feel bad about yourself. Notice our notes. Personal empowerment is the goal. The conscience 
of an individual must be trained to adhere to no superimposed truth. Don't tell your child they're wrong to lie. Don't tell your child they're wrong to tell the truth. Who are you? They are their own God. And when they decide what truth is, it's truth. And when they decide what error is, it's error. And only they can decide for themselves what that is. You know what that is? Blasphemous. Any action by society must then be accepted. Self, and you'll note self being a key phrase here, self-expression. You want to tattoo your eyeballs? As society, we need to be self-affirming about that expression. Affirming is the next self. Want to tattoo your eyeballs? Tattoo your eyeballs. Nobody, that's just your creative expression. You're right. A secular humanist would look at that naturally and say, it's a creative expression, you're going nuts. Some of you might remember, that's what they would have done when I was a little boy. You ever, you ever said that? That's why. A worldview, and I'm not talking about Christians that lived in that, just a worldview. They would have looked at that and said, man, there's no lion that literally says, I'm a tiger. You must be nuts. That's how they looked at it. But in this last 20 years, this is where we're at. Self-expression, self-affirmation, no discrimination. If you look at the natural world, discrimination exists all the time and it can be seen in some regards as being a positive thing. Go put a lion in a cage with your money. What's going to happen? Society sees that. Now listen, I'm not saying that it's always right. I'm just saying when you look at nature, there are certain things that are distinct. So to live in a society where there is no discrimination, the only way you can live in a society that's no discrimination is if that society is paganistic. So we're all the same. Tolerance. All of these things are keys to a positive view of action. A fourth tenet is such. And I wish we had a whole other session for this. A permeation of fantasy. Listen to the words here in Genesis chapter 6. The whole world wickedness of man was great that every imagination, every imagination, similar word used in 2 Corinthians, speaking on this wise, Every imagination of false heart was only evil continual. Fantasy. So you take a society where they all think they're gods. They're one. A society that is spiritual. So you've got to deconstruct everything. A society where anything you do is okay because there's no moral plane. You know what's going to happen in that society? They're going to fantasize. Now listen, imagination is something God gave humanity. It has its benefits. Under a secular humanist, or for that matter, even a deistic humanist worldview, imagination dictated by these constructs that are found in science, reason and logic, look out and say, hey, over here, boy, look at all this here. 
my imagination, how can I make something better? And you've seen that. That form of imagination, boy, it can just be so lofty and inventive and creative. That's not what he's talking about here. When it's the other way around, the fantasies of it become more godless. As a result, unnatural behavior and unnatural thinking is the result of their pursuit of fantasy. The pagan worldview is found in the depraved mind where there is no sin, there's no guilt, there's no consequences. They fail and refuse to see the existence of the natural world and the God of creation, thereby they make nature and self. Anybody know what that last blank is? God. Friend, you look at the upcoming election, listen to how divergent the candidates are. We got a fellow running for governor here. One of the things I want to do is legalize all abortions. One thing I want to do here is legalize all drugs. One thing I want to legalize prostitution. And nobody should be in prison. Nobody. You killed your dad, he probably deserved it. Don't need to be in prison. You know what that is? It's paganism. That's paganism. Might God see in us a desire not to have a humanistic worldview, but judging everything through the lens of the world. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.sbbcpa.org. Until next time.